0: Knowledge is not a solid terrain, piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The Archipelago The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record.
1: In his second book, Surge Cinema, writer, theorist and artist Evan Calder Williams used the all too familiar slow motion images of breaking glass in blockbuster films as a means to unravel the ways in which images are produced, circulated and consumed. In our second episode with Evan Calder Williams, he talks about this cycle of contemporary visual culture, permeating everything from action movies to visions of disaster, while also interpreting the recent shift of his interests towards architecture, infrastructure, sickness, toxicity and conspiracy theories. This is The Archipelago, a weekly show on Movement Radio. I'm Jens Orispa Dimitriou. This episode was recorded in lockdown mode. Calder Williams, welcome back to the Archipelago.
0: Thanks, it's great to be back.
1: So, uh, starting the previous decade, zombie, zombie flicks were all the age. I mean, we had, uh, you know, The Walking Dead, we had World War Z, we had everything. Um, but I can't think of any major production uh, recently. Do you think that the allegory lost it, its cultural relevance? Yeah, it's a, it's
0: a good question because I think, you know, perhaps more than... Um almost any other uh, major sort of you know hugely significant cultural trope um quite internationally in the past uh maybe two decades you know thinking with the figure uh, of the zombie and the sort of industry around it means that we've run into i think a really hard problem about this question of of allegory or more generally you know this sort of work of trying to periodize cultural anxieties and and the tropes that come with it and and i'm noting that because you know it's on one hand, and obviously, I, I wrote a lot about this. You know, so it mattered to me. You know, it's such a uh, a markedly um, visible kind of um, saturated with with anxiety, with with dread. You know, a figure that that arcs across the 20th century and obviously transforms and carries a whole number of echoes, as I, I sort of pointed out from from sort of reworkings of, of heavily racialized um, colonial anxieties. You know, into shifting kind of labor structures and what I talked about that sense of of a figure of sort of surplus life. Of, of being kind of an um, uh, almost literalized version of a, of a sort of Marxist framework towards um, a much more horrifying image of, of being unable to quit. So, uh, on the one hand, of course, it, it seems to track, you know, quite quite closely, and, and I think generatively with some of these things. On the other hand, you know, it also is something that we have to think about in terms of these much more prosaic, but but perhaps significant, facts also of um of profit of what genres are and are not profitable you know and i think this this is something that you know at some point it's we would want to say there's a question of whether or not the allegory loses its power there's another question of of a kind of market saturation about what point it becomes so omnipresent that it sort of ceases to be able to um at least in the minds of, of those doing kind of large scale um, cultural production, you know, sort of titans of industry, that it, it seems um, increasingly kind of less profitable. So, you know, it's, uh, that might sound like a boring answer, but for me, increasingly in my work, it's something I'm really interested in is thinking about this tension between um, a certain kind of reading that, again, I've invested a lot of my life into, you know, sort of trying to, to unpick the long ideological echoes and frictions that that get buried into increasingly, you know, sort of symbols, tropes, images, perhaps so common we cease to even recognize them. And on the other hand, you know, attending to these, these other sort of structures that perhaps animate their appearance in the world. And I think, you know, thinking in that gap is important. It's important also for talking about things like apocalyptic imagery more generally, because you know, it's a, I wrote a piece about this, um, for, for years ago for mute, sort of in a, a sort of follow up echo of the apocalypse book in which I was tackling this question of, you know, the way in which it, it seemed on the surface like we were getting all of these, sort of post-2008 films immediately responding to sort of, um you know, to to variant, to, to, to crises, to put it mildly. But the fact is when you do this sort of, again, more seemingly boring or pedantic work of looking into when were these films written? When were they shot? How were they funded? You run into this tricky question, which is the fact that many of them, of course, were produced well before the crisis they are allegedly kind of indexing and giving image to. So, you know, you either then run into a version of wanting to sort of say, oh, these somehow you know, smelled the wind of history before it came, which is interesting, you know, maybe we can say that. Or you have to um, think in a different register about, you know, as I argued in that piece, that in some sense, a kind of crisis cinema is something that also happens at the point of watching. It happens in terms of what we do with the things we we um, we watch, perhaps that we make, but above all that we we watch, we argue over, we take up into kind of our you know, sort of involuntary memory to use a sort of old Benjamin formulation. So, yeah, I would ask your question. I, I think, you know, I could make an argument about whether or not it's, it's lost its allegorical power, but I also think it's a question that goes to the heart of this this split between, you know, readings of the world that, that want to see a correspondence and readings of it then also can account for, um, you know, sort of platforms, for, for, for industry structures behind them.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah but uh, but still one can't uh, i mean how does this relation work that's my question uh, how uh, how do these readings of the world become popularized mm-hmm. uh, and what changes them
0: yeah, I agree. No, it's 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 a it's key because of course you know the other thing that I think we forget is that um, or I don't know if we forget this. I feel like I forget this sometimes, is that um, you know there isn't a kind of clean divide between also let's say um, uh, films, video games, fill in the blank, software, <laughs> essays, etc., and the responses um, th- that people have to them. You know, in many ways, what's interesting also about something like the the zombie film, and we could say that you know th- this maybe happens. Um, um, pretty early and pretty widely but it's a film that is aware of the readings that will be made of it right you know it's not as if it's um you know the sense of some sort of um yeah, cultural work that has no sense of the kind of um, anxieties, projections, and increasingly kind of pop criticism that get folded into it. So, you know, that's what you're asking about is a really key layer in this, which is, again, it's not even a flat sense of sort of like histories of production versus histories of, let's say, a theme or an image we can trace. There's also really dense and often quite surprising kind of forms of feedback um, between that, you know, and I think maybe an interesting way to think then about that question of, When do allegories lose their power or not? You know, has to do perhaps not just with the familiarity um, with a certain kind of image, you know, oh God, one more zombie. And of course, I'll just, you know, I'll note here that there's a, a distinct perversity um to the fact that that one of these most um so to speak sort of you know contagious um images was that of the zombie itself you know it has an almost perfect collapse between this sort of um the content of it right this image of a sort of compulsive repetition that can't help but imitate and literally what happens with that as a as a genre you know down to the point of like zombie fun runs you know and zombie pub crawls there's a kind of like you know mimetic faculty gone wild so you know i think the your point it hits on hits on this sort of key thing, which is that um you know, attending for what we might see as allegorically powerful kind of um images or, or or moments, you know has a lot to do with the degree to which they maybe um escape a kind of reading that feels like pre-boiled or sort of pre you know pre sort of set into it and something that feels kind of inscrutable at times. Um, so yeah, that's that's, I think one of the reasons maybe why it comes to feel less culturally prevalent is just the fact that the the readings, including, you know, broadly speaking, lightly Marxist readings of these become sort of like just baked into the things themselves.
1: <laughs> yeah, we will talk about this uh, relationship down the line uh, in more abstract terms, not only as far as zombie films are concerned. But for now, I have this question that uh, I mean uh, I owe it to both myself and listeners from our previous conversation. <laughs> uh, so yeah, in uh, combining an even apocalypse, you you actually commented on the the end of the first Mad Max trilogy. Which is, uh, you know, that uh, this post-apocalyptic population finds the new in inhabiting um, a, a space uh, pretty much as they did before the apocalypse. Uh, and, uh, you seem to, to find it somewhat regressive as a reading. And then we got a fourth uh, Mad Max movie after your book came out. Uh, and what did you think of that narrative terms? <laughs>
0: yeah so you know to to go on the record about it i mean first of all it's i i love the film in, in a deep kind of you know kinetic visceral way and, and i can say more about that because i actually think that that question of collision quite literally is really important in what it does but you know in terms of um of thinking about, yeah, the the world it builds, the world it inhabits, you know, it is also maybe fittingly with the the point I made about zombies, you know, the thing that's strange about that film is that not only the, the long lag time, you know, that it took to get it made, but of course the fact that, like, it is now a film returning to what became a recognizable aesthetic after Mad Max, that became the sort of pop version of salvage punk. So, you know, there, there's a sort of tricky way in which rather than doing a fair amount of work in in forging what becomes a really influential cultural imaginary, it is in some sense re-inhabiting something that's become so widespread, and I would note crucially widespread not just in film, but also um, in, in video games, broadly speaking, you know, and, and I will just say on this regard that, you know, as someone who, who thinks and works a lot on images you know i'm often really startled by the degree to which sometimes um people working on on film and TV, et cetera, really do not have any significant awareness of, of tendencies, um, you know, in games, which I think we, we have to understand is obviously one of the most significant visual navigational um, cultural forms. And so, you know, I I would say that there's a, a way in which, you know, the the most recent Mad Max is kind of returning to a very different landscape to sort of make a, a I guess, a weird pun about it. You know, it's returning literally to the desert. You know, it's returning in an oddly duck way you know i would say that in terms of its visions of history one of the things that's striking is it once again has a sort of like time stopped with kind of mid-period Fordism. you know there's again a kind of like a sort of nostalgia for the sort of petro world of the the mid 20th century you know that sort of runs through it and so you know it's it's a sort of um it's a tricky film because you know on the one hand we get something like that there's obviously you know it's been rebooted in some significant ways that i I'm not trying to be cynical about, I think, you know, it's, it's a tension towards um, to gender in a different way. You know, it's one of these things. One could say it's cynical because it's a big budget film. Of course, these things can be meaningful because they get, they let loose in the world. And now we have these images, but you know, for me, this is a film that also really um, this, uh, any reading of it I would give is indicative of, I think um, a bigger shift in my work, you know, maybe a little bit linked to what I was saying about zombie films, but also different, which is what for me is significant in this film and in the kind of space, crucially, that it, that it builds and unbuilds, you know, has to do with, um, with questions that might seemingly be more about um, form, technique, and style. That's to say that what's really striking about the film um, is this deeply physical kinetic space you know it is a film that of course came out during the years which i've written a lot about you know in which um digital compositing that's to say the, the combination of things like digital graphics and effects with the kind of production of a sort of virtual space you're stitching together right green screens um sort of digital backgrounds etc you know it's a film that has a really profound physicality to it that kind of flies in the face of it in, including um you know a, a number of. Scenes shot, particularly chase scenes. Sh- the whole thing's a chase scene, right? But like, you know, shot quite um, seriously with like practical effects, you know, with actual cars, etc. I think you can feel that, but it also does think really significant because, you know. In some sense, you could say if the earlier films are sort of, um, obsessed with this problem that I, you know, I argue about historical recursion, right? A sort of reproduction of a sort of life world of capital and a sort of, um, yeah, a kind of problem of, of progress and return. This is a film, I would say, whose primary axis is not one about, um, about this kind of sense of historical loss or development, it's much more spatial, you know? And it's, you know, maybe fittingly for the, the thematics of it, you know, it's a film we might think of um, in the way that someone like, like Pulantzis, Nikos Pulances, um thinks about the notion of sort of barbarian space in state power and socialism. And he makes this really interesting point about um, about the sort of figure or the this sort of um, the spatiality of something like the the barbarian, which for him, you know, comes to name, not even a sort of space of like a no man's land, but a no land. And so, I would just say that, like this film is doing something for me, but almost more sort of striking in terms of literally how it sort of constructs and moves through and collides um, in space. And it's one that I think you know we have to think of as as inhabiting and doing work um, in a zone which a lot of visual experience has come to be really mapped by the sort of strange um, weightlessness, the, the the kind of negated space uh, of you know you'd say kind of depicted space in the wake of software. So, you know, it's, I don't know if that's the answer people would want, but I actually, you know, for me, I'm. it's a film that really signifies the need to move beyond a certain kind of ideological reading of maybe content, you know, that I've been really invested in and to actually think instead about um, these sort of subtending or underlying mechanisms that for me actually have a much more, uh, you know, profound relation to how it thinks
1: it's historical moment and what it wants to do with it. So yeah, what you said about the about Mad Max that it is special, it is. um, I think I also found it unique that in in the sense that it's the only movie ever that you know I finished watching it, and as soon as the end credits uh, fell, (laughs) I I turned back and watched from the start. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, the the effect is visually stunning, and it's uh, it's something you comment about in your second book, Sard Cinema, uh, where you talk about the this whole idea of the special effects that weren't digitally produced. Uh, there were you know there was this whole branding of uh, in the press on how everything was real, <laughs> and everything yeah. was shot uh, uh, in, with actual physical objects. Uh, but. I'm not sure if that actually changed the, the experience. I mean, one could say that all it did was give it a claim to authenticity. Now, my question mm. is, why does a cultural product need to have that claim?
0: Yeah, um, great question. So, so, you know, let me get, say two things. You know, in terms of, um, and this maybe will seem somewhere between mystic and nostalgic, you know, I do think there's a way in which um, a certain kind of heft um, transmits, yeah with, when things are filmed with physical effects in different ways, you know, a certain relation to kind of contingency and accident, of course, you know, as computational power increases and sort of modeling increases, you'll be able to more fully, you know, produce that, that, that sense of, of the accident randomness. But I would, you know, I would wonder about, um, your experience of the energetics of that, the degree to which there's a sort of conjunction between, um, yeah, sort of camera style and, and and sort of physical space that, that it does something you know at least to me in a film like that it sort of um it kind of cut through to me, but the question of authenticity is key because, you know, there's a way in which, and, and you could say they did this with one of the um, fast and furious films, which they're saying, like, we really threw cars out of a plane on parachutes, you know, and, and, um, the, you know, a lot of the advertising, interestingly, that literally the trailers for it or the extended trailers showed the production process itself. Now that for me is really important and really significant. This, this notion of a way in which you also advertise for something by means of showing the work and process that goes into it. Um, You know, and I think this, this signifies what's key about that sense of, of, um, of the, the publicity or the advertising of authenticity, which is to say that that's historically situated and it's historically situated in a sort of, realm of, of, viewing experience and not just viewing experience, but navigational experience. Again, I, you know, I would, I would note that the, the years I think of as sort of, you know, shard cinema years are also ones in which, um, you know, forms of of truly kind of navigating and, and occupying space by means of of a, that sort of strange top down virtuality of things like Google Maps. You know, it's these are these are the same years, and I don't think that's that's accidental in terms of how these work on us. So, you know, authenticity or the claim of like real things hitting real things, bodies touching bodies. You know, that only has a kind of allure or power insofar as it kind of runs counter to something like. um a more general or expected experience of that kind of virtual weightlessness. So, you know, that said, one of the things that I really try to argue um, in shard cinema, you know, is that, um, you know, despite this relation maybe of kind of heft or contact uh, and this kind of negated space of of procedurally generated um, interaction, Nevertheless, you know, for me to say that is not to say that I uh, am someone who thinks about, let's say, you know, digitally intensive images as somehow um, decoupled from uh, the physical world. And in fact, one of the core arguments of the book is to move counter to this. You know, there's a lot of nostalgia, I think, um, that can happen in maybe just everyday viewing, but also especially in in people who who write about film and write about the passage from celluloid to digital work that tends to see a kind of loss of indexicality. And by that, I mean a sense of like a, a loss of the capacity of these images to register and transmit, um, again, these these real sort of accidents and unpredictable um physical traces in the world. And what I kind of argue for instead in that book, you know, via both the reading of um, what we see, but also of the processes that underlie them, the the labor processes, the the structures of capital, the structures of technique and knowledge that underlie them. And that ultimately I think we, we have to see these images as suffused with, you know, I really argue that these, um, even these most, you know, glossy, contactless, weightless seem, you know, sort of like two virtual robots spinning in space of software or something, you know, are actually also, they're deeply indexical, but they are, they're indexical in a different way in that they are marked by, again, the contradictions of the process of their making. And, and that in some sense, we need to carry out and do the work ourselves of sort of thinking with them, um, as, yeah, profoundly saturated with these, these, um, the limits, the violences, um, of, of the kind of geography, uh, of capital
1: some sense. Yeah, and now just let me add, uh, for people who might not have read your book yet, that it starts with this uh, image of, uh, you know, a slow motion uh, and actually a a texture being destroyed in slow motion in in a very close-up way where you can see, you know, a shards of glass flying or maybe the splinters of trees that are being shot or uh, this image that you describe is, uh, you know, as very familiar from the beginning of the book and it's one that you know, uh, one can recognize instantly we are uh, we are really close to that. And, and I want to come back to what you said about this needing all these resources to be produced. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking, is this just, I don't know, capital flaunting itself? <laughs> and, and if yeah. so, uh, why go, go for such an extravagant move? What purpose does this serve since we're talking about popular spectacles? Yeah, absolutely.
0: No, I, I think, you know, there's, um, there's a couple ways sort of into this. So, you know, I make the argument in there and I think I would, I would still, um, stand or, I stand by the argument in terms of the moment I was talking about. I Maybe it'd be interesting to think about um, how this has shifted since. But, you know, I make the argument that some of these indeed most sort of like capital, capital-intensive capital imaging, and, and again, to be clear, some of the ones I'm talking about, if you think about literally the money as well as sort of render hours and and human labor put into them, these are some of the most expensive images ever made in the history of humanity. I refer to them essentially as kind of new cathedrals. You know, the, these are sort of so thick with, with, with time... Well, with with capital and with technique. So in one regard, yes, some of these images kind of emerge as something that at least initially, although there's always a continual shift in this, but at least initially you could not make without these levels of kind of, again, you know, computational power and money, you know, in some sense. And so it was a way to make images that could not be produced at a lesser scale. So in that sense, like, they are kind of like images of capital by capital. And there's a, a sublimity to that in real, real ways. I'm not denying the... It the strange in the sense. Yes, exactly. No, exactly. It's a kind of, you know, to make my bad puns from the book, but it's a kind of, you know, a sort of shattered, slowly drifting mirror um, of, of its own wealth. So, you know, in one regard, that's part of it um and the thing of course it's tricky is that each one of these effects especially as they become more and more culturally prevalent and i'm glad that that in reading it you had the the sense of instant familiarity you know because i'll say that one of the things that led me to that book and that i'm interested in as a method is to try to think about these images that we feel like we've always seen already right that like we just they've been kind of hiding in front of us all along um uh and just constantly so i would say that you know the, as these become so familiar, as they become ubiquitous, but also, you know, as they have a kind of charge to them, of course, you know, sort of other um, software houses, sort of post-production studios, etc., all the way down the line are trying to do them more and more cheaply, right? And and in some sense, in ways that are potentially more and more automated. Uh, automated, at least in the sense of building software that can do
1: this work with comparatively less um, kind of human tweaking. You, so, you mentioned the example of Frozen, I think, where they had Emma Seen build produce the snow <laughs> exactly, and 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 frozen is such a it's a key instance in this because you know snow is is
0: uh, as I'm speaking to you right now it is snowing heavily outside my window so I've got a, a good example but you know snow is one of those. um those I, I'm I'm really interested. I feel like in thinking about these sort of uh, long transgenerational, transhistorical, certain kinds of um experiences, or, or or kind of um almost like forms of thought bound to to certain occurrences. And I, I would say that you know something like like um I think of snow is one of these. Snow generates a form of thought. This is me in like a very sort of Simon Don way thinking about techniques. But like I, I think that you know snow is a kind of indelible image across sort of um, human histories of this kind of like strange accidental singularity right it all looks the same and yet to predict the way in which snow will sort of unfurl or or stick or clump in front of us it, it's it's so hard to predict so indeed what frozen you know the the kind of marvel of frozen was this proprietary software that could start to approximate the kind of randomness of how snow interacts but of course you know so so these things you know that's a kind of step forward i think it underwrites a lot of the charge of that film for people but as these images become culturally important and other producers down the line want to obviously imitate them and get them in their thing you develop sort of forms of of kind of copying them so you know, what be- maybe in Mad Max is interesting about that, you know, that's sort of coming out at a time in which, you know, shard effects have become so omnipresent that I think you can actually start to see even in, in other kind of larger budget productions, a turn away from that kind of, you know, splintering, twinkling, you know, kind of drift of data and, you know, towards an interest maybe in, in other forms of sort of like kinetic collision. So yeah, I, I think it's just, um, we have to always see these questions of novelty and familiarity as ones that are in process, that are not totally linear, you know, and can involve sort of unexpected both reactivations, but also, um, you know, also sometimes they, they can lose their force simply by being copyable. Mm-hmm.
1: You know the, the idea. There's also the idea of slowness. Ab- apart from uh, mm. you know uh, the graphics that go into it and the rendering and all the people that are involved in producing it, uh, the the way that it's uh, considered aesthetically appealing uh, yeah. kind of makes me recall I don't know Paul Schrader or Les you know the the one with the transcendental style in film essay and the sure. other the, the concept of the time image. And, and I'm thinking, is this uh, aesthetic choice of producing these images uh, just you know, blockbuster cinema cannibalizing the learnings of mm. high art.
0: Oh, um, I mean, in a, in one sure, in one way, yes. You know, and I and I'm someone. It's funny you raised Deleuze because you know, um, you know, particularly Deleuze's writings on cinema for me remain really frustrating because of I think Deleuze's um, relative, if not total, indifference to pulp cinema <laughs> to weird genre stuff. You know, it's a book that like um, is is heavily invested in a certain comparatively narrow canon of, you know, often incredible film. But I think, you know, there's insights to be drawn from genres that never, um, you know, rose to that level of critical attention. I, I make that point because about this question of, you know, a sort of contagion or, or cannibalizing, you know, I actually think that the divides between something like large scale industrial film production production, uh, what we might think of as kind of, you know, art art cinema or global art cinema, kind of pulp and genre, really like B and Z grade work. And then, you know, sort of artist film stuff. I think those are much more porous, you know, than sometimes we historically set them up as, you know, and I think there's a, a kind of endless set of borrowing and echoes. Um, in the case of something like this, you know, I, I think the core argument of the book is that... Um, you know, maybe aside indeed from from um, an attempt to sort of seize on, I think, you know, music videos, for instance, would probably be where we'd want to see that kind of relation to to slowness and a kind of cinema of attractions, to use, you know, Tom Gunning's old phrase of that. Um, you know, a lot of these techniques really getting worked out in there. Or think of, you know, even bullet time, for instance, you get in, in Gondry music videos, you know, and commercials prior to cinema, uh, prior to what we want to call movies. But, you know, I think the core argument of the book for me about, um, slowness in this, you know, is linked to what I I call in a sort of unwieldy term, but I think it's a useful one, um, sort of allegories of technique. And, And what I sort of argue is that, you know, we can read Hercules and the Sherlock Holmes films and Transformers for a whole number of, um, of, of ideological, you know, crosswinds or something. And those are absolutely there, but there's a way in which for me, what really drives them, what actually like brings them to be in the world, um, is in some sense an exploration of their own technique and crucially a way in which the kind of processes of their own making come to be, again, kind of mirrored in the final result. And, and I can give, you know, two quick examples I, I kind of raise in the book. You know, one is that in the the second... Um, 300 film, terrible films in so many ways. Like, I mean, just the most homophobic is imperialist claptrap is awful. But, you know, in the second one, when they made it, you know, there's this really fascinating discussion that I found from from sort of comments by the, the VFX studios that worked on it that actually, like... They they were open to having, the, and for those who haven't seen it, one of the signature effects of this is this kind of blood that drifts and hangs in the air, like this strange kind of, you know, aqueous sort of octopus sort of hanging as the camera kind of moves in halted, slowed time around it, right? It's this absolute what we call speed ramping or time ramping. Time halts after action and kind of drifts around it. But, you know, when they made the second film, the VFX studio, like the producers basically said to them, like, um, like, oh, it doesn't have to be blood. <laughs> like, the thing that you do this with doesn't actually need to be blood. And so they apparently had this reel, which I would love to see, but is not available, of like them trying it out with like oil and water and all these other effects. <laughs> and, you know, for me, this is so significant because, of course, like, yeah, the film is a, it's an absolute, you know, vile parable of kind of, it's a hyper orientalist um, kind of transposition of, you know, fasc- fascist stoicism, you know. But on the other hand, what sort of this suggests is like, what drove that film to be made again and to circulate in the way it did in some sense had to do with this kind of sub-representational level and much more to do with this kind of um, experience of this kind of slow time, the effect itself. And just the other example I'd give that, that for me really was key to the sense of an allegory of technique is that, you know, if you, you or anyone listening, you know, ever um, works in, in video editing software, you know, as I I do a lot, um, you'll, you'll come to be really familiar with the, the strange kind of visual and, and chronic or sort of, um, or sort of temporal experience of sort of scrubbing through a timeline, sort of sliding through it. And there's a way in which, you know, I've come to realize that this, this, fluid time maybe again yes yeah, it's, it's way beyond what Deleuze could have gotten into but a new sort of temporality that i think is particular to to digital editing um uh of this kind of whiplash in and out of sort of super slow granular kind of frame by frame or high frame rate frame by frame and then kind of whipping through action what it looks like more than anything is the experience of just dragging a cursor through footage and sort of stopping to look at a moment and going again so you know for me these are um These are ways of saying that, you know, what's at stake in so many of these things, perhaps, is a kind of reckoning with uh, the means by which they are made, you know, uh, to a degree.
1: Yeah, I think your whole work recently seems to imply that the way images are produced, circulated and consumed is defining... uh Maybe I I don't know if it's uh, if I can say the organization of society, but it's mm. but it's affecting it definitely at any given moment. I uh, uh, I want to ask you this: When does this domination of images in I don't know our, our collective consciousness? But I think that's where I could spot it uh, begin. And how does it function?
0: What a <laughs> like! How many hours do we have? It's such a <laughs> no. It's a, it's a great question. I mean, um, okay. So I. Uh, um, let me. I've got so many ways into this, but let me give, I'll give the one that's coming first to mind um, and I'll see what, what percolates later, which is that, you know, for me, there's a certain um, relation to what we want to call images um, that I think really hinges on, um, a logic of the screen. And for me, the, the notion of a screen is really important, um, you know, as sort of separate from the image, just as a support from it, because what it suggests is a kind of, um, I would argue, you know, relatively historically novel, but increasingly kind of powerful relation of this split between, let's say, an image um, or an appearance and the structure that supports and enables it, you know. And I I argue in a chapter of that book, you know, about um, about weirdly about barricades and and sort of photojournalistic um, attempts to kind of produce an apocalyptic frame of of uprisings, um, you sort of reaching back um, actually to the. You know, much commented on history of the arcades, you know, in this in historiography about sort of modernity and changing regimes of vision, etc. But, you know, really to argue that, that maybe what matters so much about, um, you know, that the moment of the arcade in some sense um, is the way in which it develops and articulates um, a kind of architecture that is able to sever an image, including an image of consumption or a kind of fantasy, you know, a sort of like libidinal participation of process that maybe you can't afford. It can sort of separate that from um, a relatively durable infrastructure that's able to kind of contain and articulate that. But that, again, crucially, in many ways, that requires you to not see structure that makes it possible and in that case i really argue for something like glass as this particular um having this particular function of the thing that both like produces and frames something as image because you can't touch it you can't kind of reach into it but also you know that that from that moment has a policing function that's to say it regulates access to actual structures of kind of consumption by means of those of money, those who are allowed, those who will not be kicked out of what's, you know, a sort of pseudo public space. So, you know, in terms of this, this question of the kind of um, the centrality of, of images, and I think you described my, my commitment to this really well and that, you know, I'm, I'm maybe more and more, I feel like the longer I, I think about some of these questions, Uh, really interested in thinking about the work that images do on us rather than the work we do with them. Um, But I would say that maybe one way to start is to think about this sort of historical um, decoupling or the production of a capacity of an image that can be kind of um, unstuck or autonomous from the kind of conditions that produce it, you know, and there's a lot of ways to read out in that, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, an interesting moment. I think we could really contest it's both. It's maybe it's, political framing and the the history behind it but a moment i'm always struck by you know in 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 de Boer's own writing um you know is also really around the, this notion in some sense when he's he's kind of arguing about the uh the emergence particularly of certain forms of of broadly speaking sort of socialist and communist parties where he sort of says quote an an image of the working class arose in opposition to it now, again, I, I think that's it. there's a lot we can say about whether or not that's historically true. I think the dynamic is, is important because it allows us to also think about the way in which images can name a process in which a often necessary capture and articulation of kind of forces uh, in motion can become sort of decoupled from it and really hard to contest. Right. That one of the ways to think about an image is something that has a life beyond its moment of, of being framed or posed. And these are what I've often talked about under this category of the, of the pseudo, that we can think about these things that are so hard to challenge because, in some sense, they've become dehistoricized. But in some sense, you know, the in like a DD Huberman way, you know, the afterlife of images, you know, means that they continue to kind of contain these energies, but they can be um extremely hard to sort of uh bind back to the histories they issue from Mm
1: -hmm. and that actually leads me to to something we touched upon in a previous conversation uh but i feel like I uh, could ask you a little bit more about it since, uh, I want to refer to a recent essay you did, uh, Nuna's Night, uh, yeah. where you examine our, our viewpoint and how the apocalypse is unfolding, uh, by looking into, look at and the fantasy that you describe as Arcadia. I think Arcadia is what mm-hmm. we were talking about the other time, like, uh, this, yeah. this, idea of returning to a, a lost, a paradise lost in the past. Yeah. Um, now, uh, I'd like to briefly, explain these uh dispositions the grand hotel Ab- look at this, uh, grand hotel Abis yeah. as you touch upon it in Arcadia uh, and also uh, tell us what what maybe what a third viewpoint a more valid a more desirable viewpoint uh, towards you know the possibility of catastrophe would be
0: mm. A third, give me, give me the, just so I can come back to which, between which two are the two and then I'll give you the third. Grand Hotel Abyss and Arcadia. (laughs) Ah, fantastic. Okay. Gotcha. Um, Yeah. So, so that, um, that essay, yeah, to to briefly sort of sketch the argument um, of it, you know, is um, I, I sort of am considering um, I guess, opening the question about as we touched on this a bit last time uh, on the relation between uh, yeah, a sort of a uh, notion of of the kind of urgency of images or Im- urgent images that are able to 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 kind of bring about a shock of reckoning, especially you know I would say when it comes to to images of of sort of ecological catastrophe. Although um, I think we can uh, really want to think about, and I'm writing about this in a new project um, about the way in which particularly images of of of, of racial and particularly anti-black terror um, also kind of um, are, are circulated um, in ways that I think run really counter to the the supposed intentions of those doing it. But but holding with ecology for a moment, there's a gap for me between the supposed political urgency of a certain kind of image and then understanding in some sense the uh, forms of aesthetic pleasure that they traffic in, you know, unknowingly. And and you know the is titled Nuna's Night because um I, I argue that one of the sort of central and again I think much like the shard, these are familiar to anyone, you know, if I describe it, which is a sort of recurrent visual strategy of depicting you know, the Amazon on fire or the flooded highway in some regard in a way that poses, poses it as a kind of, um, surreal, strange kind of sublime, often with like literally sort of Instagram filtered light kind of hazing through, you know, and, and for me, the, the problem about this is the way in which it, um, it's what I end up calling kind of negative Arcadia, you know, if historically the notion of the, the, the pastoral or the Arcadian, um, to, to, for the moment sort of set those two together is really linked to this kind of notion of a, um, of a projective or imagined sort of, um, often rural extra urban space of kind of, uh, contemplation, respite, you know, refuge, recharging in a sort of way. Um, there's a way for me in which these images, uh, even of, in some sense, uh, what what seems the most staggering devastation, you know, of of a sort of livable world, come to function as a kind of negative Arcadia in which they, in some sense, produce and confirm um, a certain version of contemplation. Um, of, of a certain form in which in which one stands at a safe remove from them. And so I draw on this this infamous trope from from, from of the the Grand Hotel Abyss and from, from Krakauer's writings on the hotel lobby um to yeah to think about this kind of um almost a kind of prophylactic version of the way in which one can sort of remain in the bunker and still you know take part in in the sort of you know the yeah the the spectacle of of um you know, of a world, um, going to hell. And, and so, you know, the, the tricky question, I guess, in all of these, you know, comes down to maybe, um, to what degree we rely upon not just images themselves, you know, as markers of this, or at least without, you know, accounting for the the circuits they kind of pass and move through and what they kind of, you know, do to us, how they're scrolled through, et cetera, but also more generally about maybe um, a trope of visibility in general, which I think comes to be really predicated on this, this figure of... Um, if you see, then you will change your behavior, right? There's a kind of broadly speaking uh, sort of version of this, like if you know, that will alter it. And I think that, you know, I'm maybe increasingly interested in, again, maybe like in that essay, thinking about, okay, we can we can read these images in all kinds of ways, but I also want to attend to the way in which they are also the kind of um, the, the material that passes through platforms that are having really perhaps even more significant consequences on, um, on sort of, you know, embodied experience on, on sort of daily life in some regard and really thinking about the, the, the sort of structures um, that they move through might allow us to kind of move away from and be more honest about the way in which it turns out that people historically can, see quote unquote intolerable images and they can not only be ultimately unmoved by them, despite, you know, um, protestations to the counter, but also can in some sense become addicted to them. You know, they can, you can become deeply, um, deeply hooked into this sort of, um, negative affect um to some regard of but also the images that that you know it's exciting on some level for people to see an image of a kind of blood red sky behind a gas station do you know what i mean and it's like you know that that signifies something horrifying in terms of people's lives but i also think people should be honest about um the sort of pleasures, sometimes covert sometimes not, that seemingly they take in sort of circulating and commenting on these and working through them. So yeah, I, th- I think you know it's a it's a great question. it's a huge one, but my I think my first answer would really be about um starting to 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 reckon with um, the way in which we think certain kinds of visibility uh, bring about transformations in in something like a political stance, to put it mildly.
1: And that's what I was heading for, actually, because, uh, you know, we're at this, uh, I don't think there has ever been another time where the audience is so much uh, well-versed in dealing with uh, the image itself, especially as far as, for example, uh, cinema is concerned. I mean, you now see that uh, the way uh, a movie or a series, for example, is... uh, criticized in public, has to do with representation, which is actually what Mm -hmm. we're seeing represented on the screen. Uh, And I want to ask you, how does your work fit into this? Is it competing with that uh, that way of um, uh, understanding cinema, or is it supplementing it? Yeah, I feel like, you know, and, and maybe the marks a shift from, you know, if I look
0: back at Combined and Uneven Apocalypse, you know, which obviously, you know, uh, wrote about a decade ago, you know, um, I feel like I've really shifted from there. I think that was a book, um, you know, thoroughly invested much more in this, these, um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, to be casual, like a politics of representation uh, in some regard. And and indeed a sort of um, a content reading, which things could almost not be films, you know, and this is the kind of thing I think we, 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 saw really pushed her into popular consciousness, you know, by people like uh, sort of Zizek of the late nineties and others in which, you know, um, variant scenarios from films, et cetera, um, become sort of available as sort of content or illustration of a point you want to make anyway, you know? And I feel like, um, for me, my more recent work and, you know, in the past five years, particularly, or maybe even longer than that, um, has been increasingly, um, uh, interested in really trying to, in whatever small way, um, dismantle this reliance on a certain form of kind of representation. That's not to say that, that I don't take the, the force of these, these sort of dislocatable images very seriously, you know, but I, I think there's a way for me in which, um, you know, accounting for, uh something like a a present history you know of of imagination um which you know is a term that as cheesy as it is matters a lot to me you know accounting for that means that we have to also think about um about the kind of structures like the instance of the shard like these sort of techniques that in many ways are are fundamentally sort of informing it or these these methods of circulation right like not what do we watch but how do we watch with whom against what through what and so yeah, I think you know more and more. I want to um, work against the reliance, particularly I'd say from from sort of uh, far left, whatever that term is worth. Um, sort of far left kind of cultural criticism, which I think has often become an increasingly kind of um, reliant in, in sometimes quite boring ways on a sort of easy kind of you know mapping of representation. And I really want to um, always sort of. Go down to the the level below,
1: I guess. Well, if we think of the history, I think there's only far left cultural criticism in general. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I want to ask you this. In, in one of our email exchanges, you told me that the sequel to South Cinema uh, has led you to study the proliferation of conspiracy theories. And I, w- I wanted at first what mm. might connect the two themes. And I think I got it. I, I, I'm thinking the slow motion videos of the Twin Towers collapsing given us mm. evidence that it was an inside job. Am I onto something here? <laughs> Yeah, it's a great
0: example. It, it wasn't the the core one, but I, I, I like it. I mean, I will say that you're on to one of the key points that make about that, which is, you know, if one version of that sort of slow granularity of kind of spectacular destruction, you know, one version of that is, again, this this kind of, um, I talk about this kind of busted sublime, you know, in which the character on screen gawks at it, and you do too, et cetera. You know, the other side, of course, is the promise of forensics, right? The promise of sort of like exactly like slowing down to determine the sort of, you know, the optical unconscious, what has been sort of captured in something like this. So so that's absolutely kind of one side of it. I think also, you know, and I, um, I think you referring to this, you know, project that I'm starting very early days, starting to think towards that is sort of um, at the moment sort of casually called Chemtrails, named after one of the most famous conspiracies. But um, it also really has to do with, um, you know, maybe a sort of progression from what I'm getting at in Shard Cinema, maybe what I was just talking about, um, towards really thinking about about the almost sort of neurochemical circuits um, of kind of um, media... interaction more broadly you know and and thinking really seriously about maybe this figure of being sort of like um adrenally or sort of you know neurologically bound up in um bound up in circuits including of images that that we see as kind of horrifying so yeah i think that one figure of it is exactly the 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 emergence of a sort of um yeah mass work of forensic imaginary but on the other hand also to to sort of suggest a shift that can really um really think with this question of being um slowly rewired or remade um by by platforms uh, so i think that's that's you know it's a further step in this direction um but also linked to i think an increasing focus in, in in some other work and in a in a book i'm i'm aiming to write prior to this one um much more around kind of um questions of of, of uh, sickness and toxicity um and and sort of disability history which has become a major part of my research but also um, my teaching um uh, really really centers on on questions about these these intersections between ecology, uh, queer and crypt theory
1: um, uh, and sort of spatial history. (laughs) <laughs> and that actually brings us to the last uh, question I'm hoping yeah. to fit in there uh, which is about uh, you know, such cinema stops uh, when you move away from the image towards the environment, not exactly away but maybe you expand from the image towards the environment, yeah. infrastructure and landscape. You have this uh, this whole chapter about uh, figures in the landscape, the 1970 film and uh, you associate mm-hmm. it with Peter Sloterdijk's writing about uh, terror from the air and the image of terror. Uh, and I want to, to ask you this, I want to Elaborate if you could a bit. How do you go from uh, the image to the infrastructure and then to to sickness?
0: Yeah, I I I think it has to do with the way um, in which I'm. Well, there's so many ways into this, but I guess I would say that, um, you know, the, a, a shift in focus in a lot of my writing in recent years, yeah, much more towards questions of the, of the built landscape of, of histories of sort of insurgent architecture. And on the other hand, sort of, you know, neutralizing and sort of control structures, um, you know, has a lot to do with also thinking about, um, forms of manipulation sounds too sort of conspiratorial, but let's say a kind of training um, or, or sometimes a kind of um, a sort of neutralizing function of what we might recognize as um, political or extra political possibility that in many ways sort of happens at, um, at a level that never even rises to the threshold of visibility of the image itself, right? You know, so linked to what I was saying before, you know, there's, there's a way for me in which, um, increasingly thinking about what I sometimes talk about um, as as interchange, and interchange in my work names um, this sort of securitization, the spatial securitization of expected relations um, of exchange um, and, and of the kind of correct use of space. And it's crucially something that that often takes the form of something we might think of not as an image, but as essentially kind of diagrammatic right as a, as a as a kind of articulation um, of possible flows or uses of space and so you know for me in this this kind of passage um, out of the image into thinking increasing about educational architecture uh, about um, sort of structures as I, I wrote about in this essay of, of thinking about um, particularly sort of, um, uh, sort of ice in the U S sort of immigration control. And essentially what I think is the genuine term we should use for domestic terrorism, um, the, the sort of terrorizing of, of, um, persons, you know, who are potentially undocumented, for instance, in all of these, these shifts, you know, I want to attend towards, uh, the way in which a sort of reformulation, uh, of a landscape, or maybe we could say of that, which goes from being exceptional to being, um, unseeable because it just kind of frozen into landscape allows us a crucial shift again, away from a certain sense on the, the representational clarity uh, of something like uh, yeah, political engagement in some regard. And, and I think that, you know, the work I'm, I've done a lot on toxicity and radiation in relation to kind of sickness and accessibility, you know, is a way of continually trying to attend to the, the deeply particular sort of histories of negation of neutralization uh, that in some sense, you know, come to function in ways that mean that the, the the kind of clarity of domination, right. The clarity of certain forms of repressive violence, which of course persist, but also come to be sort of really um, yeah, frozen into spaces that, that mean that they don't necessarily have to um, reveal their own operations. So, there's a lot of ways of work on this, but I would just say that it, it's part of, I think, an increasing um, shift for me towards trying to attend to these these kind of long time scales of development uh, and control that, again, I, I would argue become of an increasing. Uh, importance in, in, in recent decades, precisely insofar as they are able to pass under the sign often of sort of objective necessity. If we think of history of, for instance, like freeway revolts, uh, and, and attempted resistance, the development of, of kind of, you know, new intensive capital infrastructure projects, you know, this is exactly a kind of fight over the degree to which, um, anything can be declared neutral. Right. You know, you'd asked me last time about a relation to sort of, um, operaismo and sort of 1970s and 60s and 70s Italian thinking. And, you know, someone I didn't talk about as much in there, but as someone like Panzieri, you know, and I think that, that one of the, the, the importance of Panzieri's thought, you know, is to make a contribution to this insistence that we have to see, um, you know, histories of capital and histories of antagonism as as truly sort of increasingly kind of wired into and reproduced by even things like sort of technical form. So I would say that, you know, this is this is leading to the interest in creation and writing on on contestable space um, and architecture and infrastructure, because it allows us to talk about that threshold in which something is or is not open to contestation. And above all, those who directly contest it come to be called terrorists. So you know, this for me is is is, um,
1: is why ultimately why this remains vital. Okay, since you're such a you know a productive writer, I'm sure we have a lot to read in the in the near future. Evan Calder Williams, I'd like to thank you once again for joining us at the Archipelago. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk.
0: Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity.
1: Hosted by Yannis Orestis Papadimitriou.